Australian Fashion Week's influencer diversity is called into question, a TikTok viral handbag sparks a conversation on entitlement, and should female celebrities be responsible for men they date? We're Maggie and Jasmine, and you're listening to Culture Club, our fortnightly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people are the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We'd like to pay our respects to elders, past and present. We would also like to celebrate the rich history of First Nations culture and storytelling that we are all continually learning from. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I swear every time we get on the mic, we are just in our like sloppiest clothing, right? Like we're in our PJs or just sweats and hoodies. But of course, we're going to be talking about Australian Fashion Week. So love that for us. Well, I actually had heaps of FOMO for this Australian Fashion Week. You've been to the last two, haven't you? Or is it just last year? No, just the one. Yeah, so I've been once and that was last year. So I also had some FOMO too. It seemed like everyone was there. It's always like that's a thing with these things. It always looks like that and I'm not going to lie, it always kind of looks better in the photos as well. Like there's so much, which is classic Instagram and social media culture, but I think with something like Fashion Week, it's like ramped up even more. Mm, 100%. And this is Australian Fashion Week is takes place in Sydney. It is the biggest fashion week of mm-hmm. the year out of all of them. Um, it's mostly industry only and then there are a few consumer-facing shows. So you can't really buy tickets to this, can you? Only to, yeah, that's a thing, only to a few select shows. So it's um, more exclusive than like the Melbourne Fashion Weeks. Um, but like, yeah, what we were saying, we've got FOMO. Like what did you think overall, I guess? I thought it was really fun and I loved the street style this year. I feel like street style photography really ramped up or something Ooh. and there were more interesting photographers and I really liked it. But obviously we are in the media industry so we follow a lot of the publications True. who are doing that type of um, work and publishing. Um, but there was some controversy I saw on TikTok, oh. which kind of went semi-viral, like I feel like in Australia, like in our circles. Yeah, it was kind of savage. Um, so there was this London-based stylist and TikToker. Her page is Styling Emily Beanie. Uh, and she posted a TikTok which um, has 144K views about how Australian Fashion Week looks like an influencer event. Let's play a bit now. It doesn't feel like Fashion Week in any way. It looks like a load of girls in Princess Polly watching Princess Polly catwalks. Does that make sense? Like, I'm yet to see a look where I'm like, fashion, fashion week. Like, I'd believe you if you just told me it was like a load of girls at an influencer event for like a fast fashion brand. So I agree with her in that it did seem very influencer <laughs> That's a word we can add to the dictionary. But I didn't agree with the whole like, it looks like it's just an ad for Princess Polly. Um, I didn't see that. And to me, that shows the real algorithms that even mm. events are having. Like it's not just, oh, there's an algorithm. So I saw, I don't know, a snippet from a TV show or whatever. It's like real life events that are happening. The algorithm is like pushing that out to little like niche groups almost. And like to yeah. me, I'm like that says more about your algorithm than it does about what was actually there. 
Mm. Um, because from what I saw, yes, there were a lot of influences, but the clothes that they were wearing for a percentage of them, they were interesting and fun and there were a lot of second hands. Jolly Malcolm ended up um, stitching it and like tagging where all of her clothes were from and a lot of them were secondhand and yeah. they were really creative, like there were lo- loads of, um, you know, plus size influences, um, people of colour. It was great to see. And Refinery29 Australia did a lot of work on getting photographers out on the street and like creating carousels um, of the street style and making sure that the images that were shown were like super diverse and fun and fresh rather yeah. than print I don't know I didn't see anyone in Princess Polly did you interesting so I guess my main opinion when it comes to this is like fashion week has so many different levels of gatekeepery mm. <laughs> number one who gets to go to the shows right so these invites that go out that are from brands and PRs, etc it's like who's actually allowed access to events like this and then what you're saying um actually before that then we've got okay who are the photographers who are they like literally what is their makeup like what kind of like i guess race or background do they come from because that obviously feeds into the, what they're capturing Again, under that, it's like, okay, where are these photos being published? What publications and what editors are choosing these images? And then what you just touched on, which is so interesting, I think, because this is a new kind of thing, is like the next gatekeeper is like the algorithm and the internet Mm. and technology and who gets to be seen. So I think there's like so many different layers and we would be like, um, we would be stupid not to just mention just, I guess, how traditionally biased and exclusionary fashion is so like even though I agree with you I've been seeing very cool looks from let's say like plus size people people of color like they are pushing through the ranks like they have had to work yes. out there. and I know you're not saying that that wasn't the case but I think it is quite rare or also like a reflection of your own algorithm that you do try to interact with diverse people that we have seen this but not but like for the general public people overseas like that London-based stylist that's not the case so Sydney-based makeup artist and uh, content creator Rowie Singh also stitched this video and I really like to take on it, so we'll play it now. If we shift our gaze away from the traditional Australian influencer, you'll find creatives, stylists, fashion girlies who are really bringing something unique to the table. They're pulling from their own individual style and a lot of these people are people of colour who are not being spotlighted enough in Australian Fashion Week. Australia will never be like New York or London because the vibe and culture is so, so, so different. But there are people, there are people who are pulling looks and they need more appreciation. So what Rowie is explaining is what I saw. So I was like, oh, this is a great fashion week. There were some comments um, about the lack of plus size models on the runway. But oh, when yeah. it came to like the attendees and the content, TikTok content, street stuff photography that was coming out of it, it made me more excited for fashion rather than the other oh. way around. I love that. I mean, I feel like the other thing I was also seeing, which maybe is what that TikToker, like that London one was saying, was like, oh, everyone's kind of looking the same. Like they've got the same outfit, just a Mm. different color kind of vibe. It's because like, I mean, this happens at all the global fashion uh, weeks, but so many of the brands dress attendees as well. So Mm. like I understand why people look the same. There was an article in the Australian Financial Review which touched on the importance of um, influencer marketing here. Like during these weeks, there was this report by Afterpay which shows that 
36.8% of people who responded to the survey would be likely to buy based on what an influencer was wearing, while only 20% of people would purchase a runway look. So like street style has such sway. 100%. That's a really interesting stat. And Leafcom's director, Sarah Leaf, which is a PR agency, coordinated the week's opening show for Alame. While Alame sent six down looks down the runway, Sarah estimates that she and her team dressed a further 70 influencers in the brand's clothing to amplify the social media impact on the day. And Sarah dressed 70% of influencers on the front row in current season looks, allowing people to see them and buy them now, especially considering Afterpay was an official sponsor of um, Australian Fashion Week. So... I think that's important to remember as well because, like we said, we had a little bit of FOMO and I was also like, oh, like everyone looks so good, everyone looks so polished, like why don't I have this clothes? Like it really made me want to consume, which yeah, is same. point, right? But you have to stop yourself and then when you hear those stats, like these people were dressed by the brands. They're not mm. out here buying designer clothes every week. Like they were dressed by the PRs or the brands which if I was offered that, I would take it up too. But um, yeah. you got to, yeah, I guess if anyone else is feeling that FOMO, you got to remember that like it's all about appearances and not everything is what you see and not everything is as glamorous as you'd think, which I think you experienced last year, right? Yeah, completely. Um, that being said, someone take us next year, please. <laughs> <laughs> The contributing editor of Nylon Magazine in France has claimed that Nepo Baby Lily Rose Depp and the star of HBO's upcoming show The Idol is refusing to do interviews for the show's press run. It is literally coming out, this show, like in a week, and yet there is radio silence. Seriously, from that um, Rolling Stone allegation piece that we covered a few weeks ago, like this is rocky territory. Yeah. So the journalist who is named Louis Pisano tweeted, quote, so basically the idol premiere on Monday is in a state of fucking chaos because Lily Rose Depp doesn't want to do press because she's afraid journalists are going to, quote, twist her words around and she's still very much upset about the Nepo baby piece. So A24 is scrambling. Also, she doesn't want to talk about 070 Shake, um, which is her new partner who – is a woman, I believe. So she's come out, I guess. Didn't know that. Mm. Um, also wild for that editor to tweet that. That is like so, so sassy. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the Nepo Baby piece is referring to that 2022 Vulture article that went through a whole heap of Nepo Babies, both in Hollywood and in the music scene. Um, and, of course, if you don't know, Lily Rose Depp is Johnny Depp's daughter and her mother is the French singer Vanessa Paradis. It's a really interesting one because like this show has already copped so much heat and maybe like the show production slash Lily is just trying to cover their ass and like not cause more controversy but at this stage I feel like the show like what we saw with Don't Worry Darling like it's right like it's publicity is it's drama. What do you think yeah. about it all? I think that I agree that it's been marred by controversy. Um, I'm still interested to uh, take a look and see like what the actual show's about. But um, if you didn't know, we covered this a few weeks ago, but the show um, has had 13 people involved in the production claiming that it's been a really toxic set. And then Sam Levinson has a bunch of 
kind of controversies against him because he is the creator of Euphoria. Um, but in this show, The Idol, apparently he's like creating torture porn scenes and, you know, exploiting young women. So I think that on one hand, I do feel for Lily. That would be terrifying. And also it's probably her first major role, right? Like she's had some indie movies and stuff. But Completely. Yeah. This is like her first big role um like an hbo show like if you think about succession the last of us like hbo shows are huge right Mm. um but also babes this is your job (laughs) you want to be an actress you don't want to be a nepo baby anymore this doing press is part of your job like any actor will tell you that so i think she should get some media training and get some media training specifically around questions about her dad because her dad joined Depp has been in the news cycle of the last year or two um, due to his like court case with his ex Amber Heard. Don't need to get into that right now, but um, she should, I think she should have media training on that on the San Levinson stuff. And then it's a job. So she has to like go out and talk about the movie that she's in. Like, you know, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, she definitely has had, media training etc because she's grown up like so in the public eye but my thing is like we've talked about this before where it's like she definitely when you sign on to the movie you sign on for the publicity she would have had mm-hmm. contracts in place being like you are scheduled for this press tour you must complete xyz interview so I do wonder if it's something with production or whatever that is like forcing her hand I don't know I don't know there's a lot of like murky territory and I feel like you can just feel how like unstable this whole show is from this yeah exactly so that's what I mean I'm kind of like oh it would be hard like it'd be nerve-wracking but also this is your job if you want a job this is part of your job if you want to make millions of dollars on a tv show for HBO this is what you have to do Mm. But Johnny Depp actually came up again in the news last week when talking about like press runs and media training. Brie Larson, the actress, got out of answering a question about Johnny Depp. This is because she is a member of the celebrity competition jury at this year's Cannes Film Festival. At the film festival's opening night, one of the films that is showing is uh, a movie called Jean Dubarry, and it stars Depp, but it stars him for only 15 minutes of the two-hour runtime. So it's not like he's like a main character or something. He's in this movie. But anyway, the journalist then says to Brie, also she's sitting between two men here. This is important context. She's in the middle, two men, she's flanked by two men on the panel. And this journalist says, Brie, you're an outspoken activist and advocate for Time's Up and the Me Too movement. And then he goes on to ask her opinion on Johnny Depp being in the opening of the Cannes Film Festival and his appearance in this movie. And she handles it really well. She's like, you're asking me that? Sorry, I don't understand the correlation or why me specifically. Yeah, I saw this on um, Twitter. I saw a screenshot and even from like the still image, you could kind of see like the disdain and surprise in her eyes. And Mm -hmm. I'm so glad she handled it like that because it was – actually atrocious like as yeah like as you mentioned a woman on a panel with mostly men she's specifically asked that question yeah when it has nothing to do with her like she's not in the movie she's not you know judging that movie so I read an article by Bianca O'Neill for Yahoo and it's titled it's time to stop asking famous women endless hashtag me too questions 
And Bianca has actually been gracious enough to read out a bit of her piece. So here's Bianca now. To be clear, Larson has no connection to Depp, the movie, or Heard, beyond the fact that Larson was at Cannes to work and Depp was uh, also at Cannes. Look, I'm being facetious, yes. Larson has been a vocal advocate of the Time's Up and Me Too movements, but does that make her an official spokesperson for every issue that arises under that banner? Why is the journalist asking Larson this question exclusively, and to the exclusion of the men on the panel who should, arguably, be even more vocal about balancing equality and eradicating sexism at Khan? When we look at Me Too, and Time's Up in particular, Asking famous women to comment on unrelated stories in the media simply to generate headlines isn't just ladies' journalism for clicks. It's sexism at its finest. The weight borne by women and other minorities to be continuously expected to educate in or comment on these issues is emotionally exhausting and oftentimes re-traumatising. And the patriarchal expectation that our collective trauma should be fodder for media headlines borders on sadistic. That Larson should be attacked for pointedly avoiding such a question, asked of her solely because of her gender, a question that was an affront to her ability to remain unlinked to a controversy that had nothing to do with her in her professional capacity as a Khan judge, speaks loudly of all women's reputation being intrinsically intertwined with the usual damned if you do, damned if you don't rhetoric. Meanwhile, Depp's reputation remains solidly intact having received a seven-minute standing ovation for his film. Fashion designer Rachel Ellen Bogan went viral on TikTok this week after sharing her latest creation, a small purse made with beaded embroidery. It's super beautiful and it, like, shows a side profile of a woman crying. It's like gold beads. It's just beautiful. According to the video, which at the time of recording has 1.9 million views, she spent between 15 to 17 hours designing and creating the purse and listed it for sale at 990 US dollars or 1,488 Australian dollars. This is based on the price of materials and her labor involved. Yeah, and while a lot of the comments on the video have been really positive, it's also sparked a conversation around entitlement in the fashion industry because, of course, if it's on TikTok, there is backlash to it as well. (laughs) Yeah, so some TikTok users have complained about the price and even called it an injustice that it's so expensive. I first saw this on a Twitter thread thanks to the user Fern Davey, who is a sustainable fashion designer in England. The thread reads, Some comments are annoyed because it means poor people can't afford her artwork and art is only accessible for the rich. I don't know her financial status. Neither does it matter. But as a working class designer who's often told I should lower my prices so people can afford them, it fucks me off because a lot of you think you're entitled to these crafts. If I lowered my prices to be more affordable, I would still be in poverty. I don't see that same attitude when it comes to paying 2k for the newest trending Chanel. If you cannot afford the product you want, it doesn't give you the right to demand the maker to labor it for free. And that's the same for all clothing. None of that is made by robots. It reminds me of this um, quote that I don't remember like word for word, but it's something like if something is out of your price range, it doesn't mean it's too expensive. It's just like out of your price range. Mm -hmm. And I think this, especially in a case of like a local maker, like pouring so much labor and so much artistry and talent into a piece like this, like that rings especially true as well. 
100%. And not to be all like kids these days, but I swear like our grandparents' attitude to this stuff was like, I can't afford this jacket, this coat. So I am going to save up my pennies Mm. (laughs) and then one day I'll be able to buy it. But our attitude now because of instant gratification, because of buy now, pay later, because of fast fashion, our attitude is like, I see it, I want it, like, and I should have it and I can get it delivered to my door within a day. Um, and user Modern Girls echoed this sentiment and wrote on Twitter, Shein, Amazon, etc., has completely rotted people's brains when it comes to the price of goods and what people should be paid for their labor and creativity. Yeah, it just like harps back to the fact that like clothes and accessories aren't this like temporary, like transactional thing. Like it should be an investment. Like clothes actually should be expensive. And of course that is coming, like that can of course be interpreted as hyper classes because like the fact is not everyone can afford like hyper expensive clothes. But if we are looking at like what is being produced, like that um, Twitter Twitter person said like everything's made by hand and I think we also have to remember that human element of it as well Mm, yeah agreed like we're just so consumerist that it's like we see this thing online and it's modeled by like an e-commerce model and we click on the link and then it's in our cart and then the next day it's on our doorstep and then we open Mm. it and it's in our wardrobe and that's it and you can just do that so cheaply um I love this comment from user Scarlett Huck on TikTok that said Independent artists don't owe you affordable prices. You're not entitled to things you can't afford just because you think they're pretty. And I do agree that it's fast fashion to an extent, but on the other end of the spectrum, we have this like luxury consumer thing that's coming through. We spoke about quiet luxury um, last episode. You see like Sophia Richie Grange or people being like doing luxury aesthetics on a Zara budget or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I feel like this this is an oxymoron almost. Like Gen Z is actually investing more in luxury, but then also you're saying to this independent artist, you need to lower your price because it's unfair that I can't afford. Like it's so entitled. It's the most entitled individualistic way of thinking. Like I don't earn enough, the cost of living crisis, so you should like devalue your work. It's like, no, you just can't afford it and other people can. And sorry, this is capitalism, babe. I don't know. Yeah, and I think the part that irks me the most because um, like this conversation about Gen Z purchasing uh, luxury fashion and items more, right, is like most, if not almost every single, okay, so most, I'm not going to make a massive generalisation, but like most luxury houses in my eyes are unsustainable and unethical and people are still paying thousands of dollars for something like a t-shirt or a bag or whatever mm-hmm. um so in a, I know it's not considered fast fashion but a lot of the times in my head it is and I just I just don't like I, I always feel like sustainable makers and things like that cop the most heat yes. for 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 situations like this exactly yeah but it's because I think with independent or small designers there's like a face and a name connected to it so it can be like yeah. you, your price, like you, your prices are too high. You should lower them, Rachel, because I can't afford it. But when you're talking to Gucci or Chanel or even Amazon or Shein, it's just this like big corporation. There's no one name or one person who you can say, hey, like why is your process like this or you should lower this the, ha- the cost of this handbag or 
make a hire, whatever it is, you know? So I think that's why small and sustainable designers get the most heat as well, which is so unfair. And when I was like researching this to see if Gen Z actually are, you know, buying luxury, this report said that um, millennials and Gen Z account for all of the luxury market's growth last year. And spending by Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which is the generation below Gen Z. That's wild. Yeah. (laughs) They are expected to make up a third of the luxury market by 2030. And they, quote, reflect a more precocious attitude towards luxury. For millennials, according to reports, a small percentage of millennials who were buying luxury goods, they started buying them when they were 18 to 20 years old. But Gen Z consumers are starting to buy luxury goods from the age of 15. So three to five years earlier than millennials did. So this includes like handbags and shoes, but also jewelry and makeup. I find that a lot, like the Dior lip oil, for example, the way that those little products can go viral is really interesting. So I, and I 100% believe that's due to social media. Oh, yeah, 100%. It still baffles me. I still have yet to make my first designer purchase across the board, including makeup. I think when you mentioned makeup, I was like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Like I do Mm. see like the correlation there. But it's just, it's an interesting one to look at. Like we have those stats, like they're backed up, but it's almost hard for me to actually like digest and make sense of, to be honest. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I'm like thinking about like how Boost Juice was like the ultimate luxury item when I was 15. <laughs> it's still expensive. Oh my God, mood. I had a Boost Juice yesterday for the first time in <gasps> ages. That's so weird you say that. that. Green tea mango mantra. Oh, good. Oh. I rate you. I am so judgy when it comes to Boost Juice orders, by the way. That's my don't favorite. You? Yeah, it's that's very good. <laughs> yeah, but it was like $17 for two. Oh. I bought Laurie's as well. Stop. Yeah, so I was like, oh, this was like such a you know peak saturday purchase to buy a boost yeah. juice now the kitties are buying gucci lipstick or something i don't know <laughs> from bo burnham and phoebe bridges and kylie jenner and timothy chalamet to tiger and avril lavigne and selena gomez and zayn malik 2023 is a year of the unexpected celebrity couple or reported celebrity couples Of course, at the top of this chaotic pile is Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy. Okay. We haven't talked jazz about this, like, properly. What are your thoughts now? Oh, my God. So now it's definitely confirmed because at at the start (laughs) I was like, this is all a joke. It's PR. For me it was when the picture um, of them holding hands at the lunch date or something came out. That's when I was like, okay, I think it's real. But I also think that they're making music together and I think it's a rebound and she's just having fun. I don't think this is like, I I don't know. But what I find really funny is that Mm -hmm. Swifties are like, oh, my God, like she needs privacy or whatever. But like Taylor Swift, she is the one in control of the media and the paparazzi and the headlines. She disappeared for like two years. Yeah. And you don't think that she's playing with us? She's 100% playing with us yeah I want to look that's what I'm unsure about because I think she's so meticulous with her brand image and Mm. identity that nothing is an accident exactly is she just like really is she just fully in her human breakup phase where she's like fuck that I don't care I'll do whatever like I'll be seen with him I don't care because like ah I don't know I don't know um look I had the same thing when I saw that photo of them leaving um 
the studio together, I was like, well, 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 this <laughs> looks very real. Um, and I, and I, and I feel funny about it. <laughs> Why do you feel funny about it? Why do I feel funny about it? I mean, like, because like one half of my brain, like the two wolves inside of me, <laughs> was like, she's a celebrity. It doesn't matter. Like, 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 you know, who actually, like, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't actually matter. But then the other part, which is, I guess, what we're going to talk into more as well, is like, well, I know you're a 1975 fan. I've never been into their music. That's why I think I can be more like adamant in my stance where I'm like, well, I've looked at things that Maddie Healy has done and said in the past and recently. And I'm like, well, I, I don't align value wise. I was gonna be like, he's not a good guy, but I don't want to say something like that. And then it's just like, oh God, like we, we really, or I have really put Taylor on this pedestal. Mm. So I'm like, but she wouldn't do this, but she would. Yeah. <laughs> she would. I'm finding out where, yeah, I am the biggest 1975 stan. I've loved them ever since the first EP came out when I was 17. But I think the Swifties are being so parasocially weird right now. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking yeah. weird. She's a grown <laughs> woman. Yeah, true. She is allowed to do whatever she wants with her body, with who she dates. And I think it's odd how obsessive the fans are getting over her and over her life and like yeah I saw a, a tweet I think it was a tweet of a TikTok comment of course um and it was like mega Swifties who were saying that they are going to go to the Eras tour in America and they're finding people who are Swifties to and who are against his her relationship with Maddie Healy to go to the Eras tour and then turn their back on her oh, when she's singing. Oh, no and if way. it's a big enough group, then she, Taylor will notice them and will wonder Stop why her fans are literally turning on her. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. Do you guys not have anything better? To, I love fangirls. I do so much. They rule the world. But it comes to a point where I'm like, this is psychotic. Sorry. <laughs> That's actually very funny. That is drama. Um, what they were doing, I'm like, girl, you just like write it out in a diary. Get your emotions out another way. Yeah. Um, but like, I can't. Okay, so I think where I can like relate to them is just being like feeling um surprised that you don't knew someone as well as you thought, right? Like, it's just kind of that, like, oh god, like I maybe I didn't realize that she would go for someone like that. I don't know. Like the way I'm saying, like, even when I'm saying it now, I'm like, oh, I don't even really believe that. But let us actually break down some of the stuff why people are mad about like why her fans are mad um I like this headline in box and it was Taylor Swift is in her Maddie Healy era we love an era um and yeah we're gonna read out some of the piece the loudest faction of Swifties however are outright angry that their favorite pop star is dating Maddie Healy given the shitty things he's done in the very recent past the worst occurred during his February appearance on the leftist irony bro podcast, The Adam Friedland Show, in which he laughed while the host did racist impressions of what they imagined the rapper Ice Spice voice to sound like, a segment deemed so racist that both Apple and Spotify removed it. Healy apologized for his part in it, but like really, like a really crappy apology where he was like, mm. I'm sorry if I offended them kind of mm. thing. 
During the same episode, he also joked about masturbating to hardcore porn in which black women are humiliated and brutalized, leading to a lengthy Reddit thread in which fans of Swift either begged her to break up with him or came to the realization that she was, quote, another wealthy, complicit white woman. Yeah, I am like here I am saying like parasocial relationships of Swifties. I feel like I'm very biased in this conversation because I have been a fan they've been my number one nice and fried my number one spotify artist for years and years and years so i feel like i have such a biased opinion of this and so much so that when controversial stuff comes out about him i just turn the other way which is so fucked yeah. like i know it's fucked but i i definitely um separate the art from the artist when it comes to them and i feel like we all have our our artists who we do that with um but I also believe like that stuff is fucked, what you just said then, of course. Um, but something that Matt Healy does is he like plays a character on stage and it's actually brought up in this um, article. Rebecca says, if there's a single theme within the 1975's catalogue, it's the tension between irony and sincerity, specifically how Healy himself wants to be a more earnest person while playing with and sometimes intentionally trolling the public's expectations of famous pop stars. So there's this, yeah, I can definitely see how he is coming across that way and he probably is. Like he's a white man, right? So I don't know. I think it's weird though that the Swifties are getting so defensive over her like she's not a grown woman who can make her own decisions of who she dates mm, exactly I mean it's very interesting that you've uh, mentioned all this and I think it's very natural like even in like takeaway parasocial even in like people you know in real life when you like hear things like sometimes you want to compartmentalize mm. and you don't really want to accept all this because it's really bloody hard and you kind of like especially for a band that you've loved like your whole life like that changes a lot for your own mm. personal experience if if that right so I do think it's in your parasocial relationship speaking because like imagine if people are like oh yeah but Kanye West puts on it it's all a character right it doesn't negate the harmfulness mm, of what's 100%, happened yeah. okay but speaking of this is not recommendation time the book I'm reading right now grapples with this exactly it's called Monsters Ooh. by Claire Dedera and it's literally I know it sounds like quite dense and heavy but it is like about that dilemma of like what you do with art you love made by bad men essentially mm. and it grapples with that moral dilemma that's always here but it's actually really interesting and it's really good um but god you are like it is it is an interesting one about about this whole parasocial relationship and I think with Taylor like you mentioned like it's her feminism that's really being called into question here um I've seen quite a few TikTok videos about this I don't know about you being like like Taylor used to be, like you know she she like became an ally kind of thing and chose to speak out and now she's been really quite silent or her actions haven't mirrored what she said in the past that's what I'm seeing what do you mean like what do you like people were like oh from like oh when lover came out she was like oh I'm gonna like I'm such an LGBTQIA plus advocate and then like people have actually called into question like hey you you were touring around the states in um particularly vulnerable like queer like Mm. communities like in the deep south right and yet she hasn't made um any like any gesture of solidarity or statement which begs another question like 
does she have to? Um, there was actually an article in The Guardian about this. It's called Speak Now, Why Pop Stars Must Do More to Defend LGBTQ Plus Fans. And that was in The Guardian by Jeffrey Ingold. Um, and we were lucky enough to get Jeffrey to read out some of the piece in his own words. So here it is. Look what an overly aggressive security guard made Taylor Swift do. Over the weekend, the singer won praise for calling out a guard mid-performance who was being rough with a female fan. However, as a queer Swifty, I can't help but wish she would channel that same energy and her enormous platform into denouncing the record number of anti-LGBTQ laws being introduced across the US. Since starting in March, Swift's Eras Tour has taken her to numerous states that have ushered in some of the most extreme anti-LGBTQ bills in decades, including Florida, Tennessee, and Texas. Yet the singer has stayed silent. Should artists use their platforms to speak out on social issues? And if so, how often and to what extent? The current calls for Swift to denounce past controversies by her rumoured boyfriend, Matt Healy of the 1975, for example, are both misogynist, expecting a woman to account for her partner's behaviour, and demonstrative of fan entitlement. Do we expect them to understand and respond to all the hot-button issues going on around the world? Which countries, or states for that matter, is it okay for them to perform in? Now more than ever, these are valid questions to ask of pop stars. Major pop tours are water cooler events akin to sports games, Succession, and Eurovision. One of the biggest platforms around, speaking directly not only to young audiences who look to their idols for support, but the wider public who might be influenced by their views. And queer fans can reasonably expect to see support for their causes because today's pop spectacle was built on the backs of trailblazing queer icons to whom every star owes a spiritual debt. With all eyes on these tours and every moment being beamed directly to TikTok, they're one of the most powerful platforms out there, and it's devastating that more isn't being made of these opportunities. The era of Speak Now is over. It's time for pop stars who care about equality to act now. I guess my question is, like, why do we put Taylor Swift on such a pedestal to, like, speak to all of these political issues? I feel like Taylor is asked to do this more than many other big pop stars are. Mm. Do you agree? Yes, yes. And I think that is, like, a reflection of how big her audience is and how big her kind of pull and reach is. Mm. But I think it is also because after her like docu like Miss Americana doco True. and her like very strong stance like and what uh, in Jeffrey's Guardian piece like he kind of outlines all like the the charity work she did and like the petition she did in this realm which was really if we're being honest like it felt really kept like it only happened in like a two year period and then it kind of stopped so it kind of did feel like a marketing campaign you know yeah it was like a weird thing where. I'm not negating the work she did, but it almost, uh, yeah, it just kind of felt like a marketing campaign of some, like, degree. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like the stakes are even higher now with politics. I agree. Especially in the US with, like, abortion issues um, and race issues, school shootings. Um. I agree. I agree because Miss Americana is, um, yeah, a lot of it is about politics, right? Like her talking to her dad, like we have to make a statement, we have to stand up and do something. Mm. But now she's at like the top of her career, right, with this era's tour and it's still nothing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And especially, I think just to put this in perspective as well, I was listening to this episode of Sounds Like a Cult and it was about the cult of Dolly Parton, God bless. And it was so interesting because they kind of catalog her life as well. And this like, come on, Dolly Parton, incredible, influential figure, icon, loved by like all sides of the political spectrum kind of thing. Um, But she has done so much for minority minority groups and social justice issues as well and it's like that comes at a cost as well and like it's obviously I can imagine Taylor is very sensitive to like putting herself out there in this way and her team must be as well like you know Mm -hmm. trying to just appease everybody but it's like well we have seen others do it it's not that I want her like Taylor I don't expect Taylor to be a social justice warrior I don't look at her for political activism exactly but I think like in a way with like Ellen the generous, like she has built her brand of kindness and kind of like connection in this way. But I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting topic, right? God, it is. So nuanced and um yeah, interesting to confront my own biases around art and artist and and yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and same here. Like I was going to say, like I had this question written down for our doc, like, okay, um, should women answer for the men they date? And in my head, I was like, yeah, kind of, kind of. And then hearing uh, Jeffrey's words of being like, no, it is really quite misogynist to expect a woman to like speak on her partner's wrongdoings as if they have like a part to play. Like, And I'm like, yeah, I need mm-hmm. to read that thought myself as well i think this is like such a complex topic that will always keep changing yeah maggie what have you been watching listening to reading this week Yes. Um, so off my book reading spree, I have a recommendation. It is called Search History. It's by Amy Taylor and it's her debut book. She's a Melbourne-based author, really exciting voice, uh, like the quote attribution on the front covers by Diana Reed. Like it's kind of that vibe. We love it contemporary fiction novel. So I absolutely inhaled this book. I think I've read it in like two like three days probably essentially it follows this uh, main character woman and she is on the dating scene she meets this guy classic 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 and um, this is all on the blurb so I'm not spoiling anything but essentially she finds out that the guy she's seeing Evan um, his ex-girlfriend died a year ago right so yeah um, yeah And what happens is because it's set in this like good old current modern day is like she kind of becomes a little bit like internet obsessed and like is kind of fixated on like stalking this ex-girlfriend of um, Evan on Instagram, etc. And it's it's a really, really um, interesting and fun read and I guess it grapples with a lot of like moral conundrums as well Um, and it's, you know, around relationships, etc. And I thought it was really entertaining it was a really great read like yeah just just I up and down recommend it amazing <laughs> four stars I gave it four stars I think four or 4.25 yeah oh that sounds so good I want to borrow it once 100%. you know I know you have a line for your book so. <laughs> I have <laughs> a, a little cute. library <laughs> your library um that's so funny that you 
recommending a book because I'm also recommending a book. I love it. Tell me, what is the book? I think we're always in sync with our recs. So mine is a book called The Woman in the Library by Solari Gentle. And Solari is an Australian author who studied astrophysics and then worked in corporate law before becoming an author. How cool is that? Well, like so many lives. Yeah. The Woman in the Library is, um, I will read the blurb for you now. The ornate reading room at the Boston Public Library is quiet until the tranquility is shattered by a woman's terrified scream. Security guards take charge immediately, instructing everyone inside to stay put until the threat is identified and contained. While they wait for the all clear, four strangers who'd happened to sit at the same table pass the time in conversation and friendships are struck. Each has his or her own reasons for being in the reading room that morning. It just happens that one is a murderer. So it's very easy to read and it's actually a story within a story, which is super oh meta. God. I guess I can explain it quite quickly. Um Actually, no, I feel like that's a bit of a spoiler, so I won't explain that part. But anyway, it's very meta and Australian author, the main character is Australian, but she lives in America. So it kind of has these two like cultures, I guess, through Mm. it. Short chapters, very modern, easy to read, capture your attention and the characters are very vivid. So I've really been loving that. Fun. That actually Mm. sounds so good. I love, I love the sound of that one. Great wreck. Yes. Likewise. So this is like our last pop culture episode for a few weeks because you are actually jetting off to Europe. I am. By the time like you listen to this, it'll be like a day or two until I'm in the air. So I'll be going to Europe for the first time in my life and I'll be gone for a month, which means that um, we won't be recording these usual episodes. So we do have one guest episode for you in between. uh, But... I can't wait to be back and tell you all about it. And also apologies for my sickly voice today. Um, Thank you for putting up with it. Yeah, I'm recovering from a cold as well. Well, have the best time and keen to see your Instagram and TikTok content. Will you be making content when you're over there or are you trying to switch off? Yeah, no, I'll still do it, but like pretty low key. Like I think. Yeah, just playing it ear. Yeah, play by ear. Daily vlog. (laughs) I'm a shit memory. I like need to make videos so bad. Anyway, whatever. (laughs) Okay, well then we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Righty, see you all later. Bye-bye.